We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Take a look here, would you, at Proverbs chapter 12. And verse 24. You know, begin with this. There was a book that was written uh, in 1936, and it has sold 50, or sorry, 30 million copies worldwide since then. Uh, one of the most famous American books that's ever been published, written by a fellow named Dale Carnegie. It was called How to Win Friends, How to Influence People. And that book just kind of struck a, a note on people. Number one, because it was so vital. Because when you think about it, the book is not telling you how to be prosperous or successful. It's telling you how to be likable, how to be a, a person that people are attracted to and a person that is respected in what they believe, how to win friends and influence people. Now, of course, his take on it was more pragmatic. These are the things you do. The Bible, that's it, one of its central ideas upon salvation. It's how to be a loving person that people love and respect and a person that impacts human beings. Jesus Christ, I would say, was well-liked or well-hated, but he was well-liked as he is today. And I would say he had a relative impact on the human race. And so winning friends and influencing people, that's what you really want when you send your kids out. That's what your prayer is, that you'll be somebody that is loved and respected and somebody that you won't be led, that you will lead and you will influence others. That's what we want our kids to be. Well, this is what this passage is about in Proverbs 12, 24 and following. This first verse says that uh, the hand of the diligent will rule, the slack hand will be put to forced labor. There's two men here two decisions, two paths, and two destinies. You have a man that rules. He is placed in a position of authority. You have another that is subjugated. He will be put to forced labor. Now, this isn't slavery like we would think of slavery. In Israel, you had what was called an indentured servant, that if you were broke and homeless, that you could attach yourself to a family which is what the Jew was, they're all family, and he would make you a servant. And so for seven years, you would work with that family. Uh, you would uh, care for them and they would care for you. And then after seven years, you would send them off and you would provide for them as they headed off. So it's like you gave a, a guy a chance to do a 180. And that was instilled in Israel. That was in the law of God. And so there's a certain guy that is given authority and there's a certain guy that is homeless. There is uh, a fellow that is elevated, he rules, and there's a fellow that is subjugated, that is lowered. There is a fellow that is going to have wealth, and there's a fellow that's going to have poverty. There is someone who is blessed, and there is someone that uh, has a slack hand. That's the reason he's broke, is that he's lazy. And so one guy is blessed, one guy is punished, because one is diligent and one is lazy. It is called a work ethic. An ethic is something that you do. 
in every situation because it is the right thing to do. A marriage ethic, a moral ethic, there's sexuality that has ethics, there are business ethics, and there is an ethic that you obey that is a work ethic. There is a way to work. Amen. And this has been the pride of our country. It was called the American work ethic or the Protestant work ethic, the biblical work ethic. And so this is a work ethic that in the New Testament, it's mentioned six times. And every time it's mentioned, it's in regard to slaves. And we're not talking here about in New Testament literature about indentured servants. We're talking about Roman Empire slaves that had been conquered, prisoner of wars or taken slaves, and they and their family become the workers. In Rome, it was considered insulting if you worked, that you had slaves work and everybody else was the aristocracy. Uh, there was a poet named Virgil. Anybody done? Don't even worry. Virgil was the first poet to start writing about the glories of labor. He was a big shift in Roman thought that it was, he could see what was happening, that we have a worthless community of people. And if ever those people are removed, our culture is going to go down. They did and it did. And so a work ethic is something that no matter where you are, there's something that guides you. See also Daniel, Joseph, David, Ruth, Ezra, and the like. They are famous because no matter where you put them, they bloomed where they were planted because they served God, not men. And they were excellent. Diligence in 24 versus slackness. Diligent means that you work hard. It means that you work consistently hard. Paul would say, not by way of eye service as those who please men, but as slaves of Christ serving from the heart. It means that you don't work simply because the boss is looking at you. You work because God is looking at you. And that's an encouraging thing to know when you're on the lowest rung of the Roman um, civil system ladder that God has something to say to you six times to put his blessing on you. Matter of fact, it has been said in a survey taken that a great factor among business CEOs is fast food. Not that they eat, but where they worked at. That most CEOs started working at McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and the like, where they learned how to work simply because of who you were and where you were, and it carried them through their lives. So this fellow works hard. He works consistently. He works honest. The book of Titus says that we're to be a model of good deeds, uh, not pilfering. Take a look at the pen you're taking notes of with right now. Does it belong to someplace? <laughs> That's okay <laughs> if they give it away. But he works honestly. The reason that you have in businesses cameras is not for the thieves. Do you know that? It's for employees to stop employee theft. Employees steal more, far more than, than thieves do. They can't be trusted. Something new. And also you're cooperative. You get along with people. You're reliable. Titus says that we're to show all good faith. 
to glorify the doctrine of God our Savior. To show good faith means that I can trust you. I can give you the keys and I can walk out. I don't have to worry about you stealing anything. I'm trusting you. You remember a guy named Potiphar? He had a wife that tried to seduce Joseph. And Joseph said, your husband has entrusted me with everything uh, except you. How can I do this great sin against God? He's trusted me. I can't violate that trust. And so this person is reliable and he is excellent. He does his work. As a matter of fact, in the Middle Ages, when you had developing what were called the merchants, in the Middle Ages, you started seeing the growth of cities and no longer were the non-aristocracy just serfs and, and farm hands. They got to be what were called tradesmen. They could be silversmiths, coppersmiths. They could be weavers. They could be um, tailors. They could be blacksmiths. And they didn't deal with land. They dealt with money. And they became the great middle class, the burghers, the bourgeois, okay? And they were so committed to their, this newfound craft that they could do that you couldn't be one of that craft unless you went through an apprenticeship and then a journeyman, and then you presented what was called a masterpiece. And those of that guild would examine it. And if it was worthy, they would let you be a tailor or a tinker, or a coppersmith, or a goldsmith. The shortest amount of uh, uh, apprenticeship was a barber. Because if you messed it up, you just had to wait about six weeks. You could do it over. To be a diamond cutter was a 15-year apprenticeship. You made a lot of money, but it, it took 15 years. And so they felt that if you went out free, foot, footloose, and became one of their tradesmen, and you did a lousy job, you cast aspersions on that trade. And so in the Middle Ages, it was illegal for you to freelance and be a carpenter or the like. You would go to a city and get under the tent, and you would, it, was, it was, had a hallmark. And that's where the hallmark and the masterpiece came from that you couldn't be one unless all the other guys said you're worthy. And so the idea of excellence stood out. Uh, ex colis means a hill that leaps out from the landscape. Ex colis, it's higher than everything else. And that's where we get the word excellent. It means you're the best, okay? And so that's what diligence is. It's craftsmanship. Uh, slackness means you're lazy. It means you're inferior, you're incompetent, you're untrustworthy, you're uncooperative, you work only when someone's looking at you. It's Eddie Haskell. <laughs> Who has no earthly idea of what I'm talking about? That's why your life is in trouble, okay? <clears throat> you need to learn the classics. Hello, Mrs. Cleaver. Shut up, Eddie. <laughs> and so basically, what separates these two men? One has a work ethic and one does not. That's why when you see a kid doing sloppy work, you're thinking, boy, you're about to have a long, unhappy life. And when you see a kid that is excellent, you say, man, mark that kid. He's going somewhere. Well, this is called, and for lack of other words, it's called the American dream. 
The American dream came about in the late 1700s when there began to be a reaction against feudalism. Y'all know what a feud is? It's West Virginia. Not really. That's where they start. A feud means a it's another word for a piece of land. It's a feud. And in the Middle Ages, the barbarians that came in and settled became what were called landed men. They, were, they had land. They had, that was money, was land. And they became the aristocracy. And those that would work for them were called serfs or servants. And they came into a covenant. He would work and tithe to the Lord. The Lord would provide land. It was like sharecropping. And he would give him two weeks a year of military service if he needed it unpaid. And so there was a steel ceiling. It wasn't a glass ceiling. It was a steel ceiling. He could marry within who he was. He could ascend to right here, but he could go no further. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't go to Oxford, couldn't go to Cambridge, couldn't go to Paris, that you stayed where you were. And so your place in society was assigned by your birth. Okay. Now, when you see that happen, what generally is going to happen? When these guys can't lose it and these guys can't gain it, you're going to start to have bitterness and then you're going to start to have oppression. And that happened. And so by the mid-1700s, there was a rebellion against feudalism. And uh, in France, they just, these guys rose up and just killed everybody. In Russia, these guys raised up and killed everybody. And they made things even. That's one way to do it. You just kill everybody. Another way is that in America, a group of people left and left feudalism. They were called the pilgrims, and they came here with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all men created equal with inalienable rights from nature's God. Are you with me? And that's why America was called the great experiment. Would it work? Religiously, could you have a church that was under volunteerism, that the state wasn't going to take a tax and pay you? Could the church survive on its own? No one knew. That was the great experience. And also the great experience was, could you have common men that could rise up to lead the country? Or did you have to have an aristocracy of the wealthy and the privileged? No one knew if it would work. But the, the American dream was, and sometimes I talk to international students, people from Beaumont, people from Austin, and, wherever, and they'll ask me, they'll say, you know, what... What is America for Chinese to Japanese? What is America? And I tell them, America is a land that formerly left feudalism behind. And I define that. And I say, in America, you are free. You have the freedom of ambition. You can be the president of the United States. Probably not, but you can. Hypothetically, if you want to do it and you're willing to do it, you can do it. Or you can become a guy that sleeps under the bridge. We're not going to restrict you from being the president, at least not on paper. We're not going to restrict you. And if anybody does, you can take them to court. It's called a civil right. And so we're not going to restrict you from being president. But we're not going to help you if you go under a bridge. Amen? At least not, well, maybe we will. I don't know. But we're not going to take from the rich and give to the poor. Uh, we have a lot of support things in place, but it's up to you. America is a place that you come as an immigrant, that you have dreams and you are self-motivated. That's why so many things that came out of America 
reflected that, okay? Uh, incidentally, I've got a lot of incidentallys in this message. This is why in America, the concept of sports took off. In no other country did sports become a cult. You know why? Because sports from the 18th, 19th centuries on, particularly the 20th, reflects the entire uh, metaphysic of America. It reflects the whole philosophy of America, that you can be of different socioeconomic racial places, but when you step on the diamond, the gridiron, the court, once you step onto it, everything becomes even. When you get in the boxing ring, everything is now even, okay? And so you can have a prize fighter step in against Michelle Barber, okay? Michelle, you've got a shot, okay? No one can restrict you. That's America, amen? And so the idea of a work ethic is ipso facto from America. You can't separate it. You got a chance of doing something. Uh, it, it's not just the American dream, it was the Jewish dream. This was in place. The socioeconomic philosophy of Israel was capitalism. Did you know that? You can quote me. It was capitalism. It was freedom. That you could be what you could be, or you could be a, a darn bum. You had that freedom to do it. Uh, Israel's economic system was that there was no lid on you to excellence. There was no lid of a David becoming a king. He could become a king. A Gideon could become a judge. Uh, a, uh, according to your skill, if you were diligent, the diligent hand would rule. There would be the remuneration of that person with honor, with respect, and with business. When you get ready to get plumbing done, you make a phone call. What do you always ask? Do you know an honest plumber? I got a mechanic problem. Do you know an honest mechanic that'll get the job done? Do you know an honest dentist? Because when somebody looks in your car, looks in your mouth, you're at the mercy of God, all right? Because you ain't got a clue. They can say, you got a biennial refractory, uh, whatever. That's going to cost you a million dollars. Can I get a second opinion? Don't matter because I don't know what you're saying. And so you're trusting them. That's why the Bible says that a false balance is an abomination to God. When you would make your shekel uh, lighter, you would cheat. You'd shave the shekel or you'd make the bushel uh, smaller that you would cheat the person. And the Bible says that's an abomination. That's a term used for the worst of evils, for a businessman that will cheat you simply because you don't understand the business. He'll take your money. You ever been shortchanged in a foreign country by a uh, taxi driver that you didn't understand the cash system and he told you something and you paid a load? Yeah, I killed one once in Cuernavaca. Yeah, I just left him for dead. I'm just kidding, her. but I felt like it. And so, uh, in Israel, the Jewish dream was that you could make money or you could be a bum. God would let you do both. But even though they had a capitalistic system, ambition was not put under. I mean, if you went to Egypt and Assyria, you really got some serious 
taking away of freedoms right there. You didn't have the freedom to live if they wanted to take you and put you in a, a tomb in a pyramid and have you die with your Pharaoh. They could do that. And so Israel was a, was a big difference, but they had a sense of social security. Listen to this. Every third year in Israel, you had a year of tithing. You had a special 10% given over and above, and it went into every local city as a vision ministry that anybody that needed short-term help in the family, because Jew, the Jews are all family, that you had something there for them, a food closet, if they got in trouble. That's in the law. Uh, they had indentured servants. If you went belly up financially, you could hire yourself out and they would take care of you. You would work, we'll take care of you. And at the end of seven years, you sent them out, not empty-handed. You gave them a second chance at life by your working with them. They also had what was called a kinsman redeemer, that if a man died, his widow is in trouble, uh, the brother of her husband, the nearest one, would take her as his wife and raise up children. It was kind of a polygamous deal, but it was done at that time. That way women did not struggle and orphans did not struggle because you'd go right into the family. They also had what was called sabbatical years. Every seven years, all of the servants were freed and all of outstanding debts were removed after seven years. So you would calculate if you were going to make a payment when the sabbatical year was and then he was gone. Uh, also, every sabbatical year, the land rested. You couldn't plow the land because what you would do is you would let the poor come and eat from the harvest that came up. Your land was freebies to everybody. And God said, I'll so align it that the year prior, I'll give you three years worth of growth. So you had to trust God in this. You wouldn't cut the corners of your land when you harvested it. You would leave that for the poor. You left, it's a tip. You left a tip. Whenever you um, harvested your trees, you would beat the branch from the trunk to the tip, but you couldn't beat it from the tip to the trunk. That's in the book of Exodus because you, you'd be trying to beat away all of this green fruit. You left it there for the poor. Now, Israel wouldn't give it to you. You had to work. So it wasn't a handout. But there it was. You could come and get it. Uh, you also had in uh, what was called a homestead law. Whenever Israel went into the land and Joshua, Joshua and Eleazar the priest cast lots and they gave the 12 tribes their land. Uh, the tribes cast lots and they broke it up in families. So every family that, that came out of historic Israel had land and a home. What do we call it in Texas where you can't lose your home? We have a term for that. Homestead law. Israel had a homestead law. And if you, you could not buy land and remove the ancient boundary that the fathers had set, the land had to stay what it was. And so uh, you always had a home. And if for some reason you lost your home, the neck, you, it did not go up for public sale the next of kin would step in and I'll buy it and then I'll give it back to you. That way justice, economics, and compassion work together. So not everybody could, 
have an estate sale. It went first to your family. And they had years of jubilee. Every 50 years, you reset, and everything went back to the book of Joshua. And so there was no sense for you to try to become uh, a, uh, a monopolist and add house to house and field to field. That's the book of Isaiah. There was no reason to do that because you were going to lose it and it would go back to the original. Also, the law ordered compassion. You were not allowed, if you found something, you could not have finders keepers. See, y'all thought that was in Deuteronomy, all right? But it's not. There was no finders keepers. If I found what was not mine, I had to keep it. And then the guy would come and claim it. Uh, if a guy was broke and you were going to barter with him, you could not take his cloak because that's what he slept with. And if you went in to get what he owed you, the law of God says that you could not uh, enter his house. His sad estate was not such that you could dehumanize him and go into his house and take it. You had to ask. Isn't that something? And so Israel had capitalism with strong social obligations. It had strong social obligations, but it was not socialistic. You never took money from the rich and gave it to the poor. It was to come by grace. And so you were capitalistic, but it wasn't runaway, inhuman capitalism. You had social conscience, but it was not Robin Hood of taking from people. Do y'all remember a guy in the, in the book of Acts named Ananias and Sapphira that got killed by God? And it was because, let me back up just a second. There's always historic problems between capitalism and conscience. There's always been a problem with it. If you just have laissez-faire, hands-off, and everybody can make all the money that you want, what do you do about guys that will have factories and work you 12 hours a day, and if you don't like it, they'll get rid of you and hire another immigrant to come in and pay them 30 cents a day, and then hire a kid that'll work 15 cents a day. And if you're a woman that gets pregnant, you just lost your job. Too bad. You got hurt. That's just your problem. That's what happened in the uh, late 1900s with the Industrial Revolution. And so there was an inhuman kind of capitalism that happened just out of the, the greed of men. Unless you were in England with the Cadbury's. How many of you ever eat Cadbury's? Okay. When I was in England, I swore by them. All right. Best chocolate you've ever had. They were Christians. They made a load of money off processing chocolate. And with their money, they did what was called profit sharing. That it's not right for simply the owners to take this money at the expense of the workers. And they would build cities and schools and playgrounds and everything for their workers. And that's why if you didn't have that, you had to have what was called trade unions, collective bargaining. Or you could strike. And then they could come back with a strike breaker and pay them monies to break your head. Now, all of this happened in the late 1800s, and it brought about a system in Russia because of the oppression that they saw 
of capitalism. It said, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your... Okay, this is history, okay. While y'all were napping, this is what they said. You have nothing to lose but your chains. It was called communism. Communism was a Christian heresy. It was trying to bring compassion where there wasn't any by means of atheism. And it didn't work. It ended up, because now who's going to take your money? These guys. Who's going to distribute it? These guys. Yeah, money never corrupts you. And you ended up with Castro and Ho Chi Minh and Mao and Lenin and Stalin and all of these guys. And so whenever you see capitalism that runs away, there's a heart of the populace that goes, that ain't right. We've got to keep things equal. The Bible looks at equal chances. It doesn't look at equal ends. You dig? That's very important. You give people equal chance. That's their civil right. You don't give them an assurance of equal ends. We're not going to have, don't email me, but we're not going to have an affirmative action that you have to have X amount of this and X amount of that, and the government has taken over your hiring process. We're in control now. You can't do that. And so uh, whenever you see runaway capitalism, you will always see socialism follow it, people with a heart. And, but the problem is, who's going to take your money and who's going to distribute it? You've got a problem now. And so there's always this tension between the freedom to make money and the compassionate use of accumulated wealth, their, their attention. There's only one answer to it, and that's Jesus. That you have the freedom to work, but as you work, you have a sensitivity to those around you. You can't enforce that. You dig? You can't legislate that. It comes with grace. So Christ is the only answer. Western civilization for the last 300 years has been like Frankenstein's monster. That we keep taking these dead pieces and piecing them together and trying to give it life and it won't work. It has to come. This is what, did, didn't I skip what I was doing just a second ago? Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Whenever you read through the Bible, you stop at Acts 2. And if you were Spock, working on pure Vulcan reason, you stopped and you went, Captain, Captain, who has no idea what I'm doing right here? Okay. Captain, something changed. We wanted compassion within their money-making and we couldn't get it. When you read the prophets, they're usually crying out against the abuse of the poor. And yet all of a sudden after Jesus dies, you get no more than 45 minutes reading and you've got everybody giving away what they had, putting it at the feet of the apostles. No one claimed anything as their own. And it's a social uh, sense of your brother. Isn't that something? It's the Coke commercial. Okay, it's the Coke commercial of we're all living together in perfect harmony. And you had a guy 
named Ananias. And he sold a piece of land for, hypothetically, uh, 50 bucks, okay, and gave the $50 to the apostles. But the fact was, he didn't sell it for 50 bucks. He sold it for 100 bucks, and he lied so he could pocket 50 bucks and take credit for 100 bucks. Ain't that something? Well, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he said this, before you sold that land, it remained your own. Meaning, we didn't make you sell it. There was not a communal system, a socialistic system. We're not Robin Hood. That's in the Living Bible, okay. We're not Robin Hood that take from the rich and give to the poor. Before it was sold, it was under your control. And after it was sold, it was under your control. We didn't make anybody give. It was up to you. And you lied, and you didn't lie to men. You lied to God, and you don't do that. And he died. The point is, you give, but nobody is going to take it from you. Amen? As soon as I get invited to Congress, I'm going to give this message. You give out of the compassionate use of accumulated wealth. Uh, he had a wife named Sapphira. And she came in and Peter said to her, how much you sell that land for? Oh, we sold it for 50 bucks. No, you didn't. You sold it for a hundred. Can I visit with my husband about this? No, as a matter of fact, you can't because he's dead. And the guys that carried your husband out are about to carry you out. You know what her mistake was? I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Her mistake was that she submitted to her husband. Everybody still here? Okay. What she should have said was, Peter, we sold it for a uh, hundred bucks and my little weasel of a husband put 50 in his pocket. And uh, I'm so sorry that he did that, but I can't, I can't lie because you're sovereign over me, not just my husband. Okay. And Peter would have said, well, I got some good news. You're free to remarry. <laughs> so Spock would have stopped and said, Captain, we finally see it happen. Making money, but under nothing but the constraints of grace, giving it to people who need it. What a wonderful system. How did we get this? It's not commanded. It's simply implored by God to be merciful. God is giving. His son is giving. The spirit is giving. The Bible gives light. And we're to be giving. See? Uh, let me show you something. Just keep your finger right there and go to uh, visit among yourselves. 
1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to the next generation. The last letters of Paul are 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and they're to the next generation. And at the very end of 1st Timothy, very last paragraph, he says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. So is there in the church a division on how much we make? Yes, because we're free to do that. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Here's what money can do if you don't watch it. When it's laissez-faire. You know what laissez-faire means? It means hands off. You don't have any divine authority over it. Here's what happens. You'll be conceited. It can make you arrogant. And it can make you fix your hope on uncertain riches. Question, you business people. Can the economy ever change? Okay. Yeah, it can change. It's uncertain. You don't know. But on God, who supplies us with all things. Question, according to Paul, where does your wealth come from? God. Deuteronomy, God gives you the power to make wealth. And he does it discriminately. Some make a lot of money, some don't. Some have great talents, some are meager. Who knows? That's the way God does. There's a gradient out there. But he supplies us with all things. We get it from God. And what's the last word of verse 17? Enjoy. Put down Rocky Road. <laughs> Dr. Pepper. You're to enjoy. Don't give your money an alien ability that it doesn't have. And that's to give you meaning of life forever. It's not going to do that. It'll give you money to enjoy. And instead, in verse 18, you want to get rich? Here's what you do. Instruct them to do good, meaning with your money. To do rich and good works with your money. So would you say that wealth is simply something to enjoy? Or is it all also something that you're responsible for? Yeah, you have to be a steward of what God gave you. To be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. And so, does Paul condemn having wealth? No, but he says there has to be a social sense of the compassionate use of accumulated wealth because where you don't get it, you're gonna have the French step in and kill everybody and take your money. Or you're gonna have Lenin step in and kill you and Stalin take your money. Or you're gonna have the government all of a sudden play God and come in and say, you can't make this much and we're gonna take it. And that's when people start killing people out there. In other words, you can't really have a society unless you have Israel. That was the way to do it. But you can't have Israel unless you have reborn hearts. That's called Christ. We're the only guys that can do it. So are we ever gonna fix this world apart from the second coming? No, we're not. In verse... 18 is to be ready to share, storing for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. When you see a couple, a guy, a girl that is open-handed and is called generous, it's the only time the Bible says you're to be liberal. 
Okay. God loves a liberal giver. So it's where you're liberal. You're free with your money that you do good with it. You store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. When I see a young couple that gives, I'm thinking you're about to have a happy life. Give and it shall be given. Press down, shaking together, running over. Uh, I rejoice in what you have sent, receiving from Epaphroditus your gift, and my God will supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He that sows much gathers much. It's uh, something you have to learn. Again, people have asked me before, how much should a New Testament guy give? And I say, we don't have a number. The Old Testament taxed you as a child. I need a 10%. The New Testament doesn't humiliate you because if the New Testament put a tax, if you've got to give this percentage, it would be humiliating to the Holy Spirit. You give what you want. Well, can you cheat God on this? You can try, but he's willing to let you try to cheat him. But we're going to have money given because you love God. Give no more than Jesus. And so you've got a good foundation for the future so that you can take hold of that which is life indeed. That's talking about right now. What's the feeling you get whenever you give? You go, whoa. I remember one time, I think I've told you this before. I was uh, over at, you remember Buddy's? over close to the highway. I was a young single guy living there and me and my buddy Clark Lawrence were walking in buddies and there was a white envelope laying on the ground. Had a bunch of suction cup marks on it from people walking over it. And I just looked at it and said, huh. And I reached down and picked it up and it was $800 in cash. I immediately said, thank you, Jesus. I'm sorry. My bad. But it's $800 cash. And all I could think of is somebody is real mourning right now. So me and my buddy Clark went in there and we looked for a, some kind of identification. We found somebody had gone to an eye doctor and it was, uh, they lived over here on Redwood. Two initials, and I can't, now I used to, could remember. But there was the name of this person. And uh, I said, to, we went inside and I said, does anybody turn this no, nobody's claimed anything. So me and my buddy Clark checked in what was called a phone book. Okay. And we found this name and it was on Redwood. Right over. Yeah, right over here. And uh, we went over to Redwood and knocked on a little small modest house. And we heard uh, a lady open the door. Little old lady. She's about two foot one. Okay little grandma, and she went, yes. And we said, did you lose something? And she went, glory to God. And she knocked the screen open and grabbed Clark right here and me right here and just hugged us. And she had one of them little old lady phones with the cord that went about 600 yards. <laughs> and she was talking to her little old lady friend 
And she said, I told you they was good people in this world. And we sat down with her and she had had a husband that was a farmer that had a brain tumor. And to get it out, she had to have $800 cash to get the thing started. She had worked for $50 a week doing kind of sit-in hospice care for this, and she lost it. She just lost it. And she just thought it's gone forever. And here we were, two Christian, we were just young Christians. And so no one showed us that you don't do finders keepers, but it was just the instincts of a believer. Do one to others as you'd have them do unto you. And so we gave it to her. And then years later, I was at Grandy's, which the initial name for Grandy's was Granny's, where they would hire older women. No one knows what that age is, but they would hire older women. <laughs> little grandmas to come in and do your coffee and waitresses. And I was in there at Grandy's and these arms came about me, embracing me. And I looked up and there was that little lady. Do you remember me? Yes, ma'am, I do. Did you get that surgery? Yes, I did. Then he went and died. I said, well, that's, that's what we men do. And so we hugged and she just wouldn't turn loose of me. She wouldn't turn loose of me. Years later, I'm at Safeway. Remember when we had a Safeway? Or Piggly Wiggly. I think it might have been Piggly Wiggly. Where little old ladies have all shop. They have scholarships. They go there. <laughs> and I went through there, and that was when you signed a check, okay? And I wrote, and she said, you got your ID? Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Tommy Nelson. Thank you. Well, there's a voice behind me, Tommy Nelson. And I turned and it was the daughter of that woman. And they would tell stories about me over campfires <laughs> of Tommy Nelson. <laughs> Hold up my picture. <laughs> she grabbed me. They love me generationally. And that's what he means that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, I remember another time. I'm telling you all my greatness stories right here. This time I was at a Kroger's and there was an old guy in front of me, some greatest generation guy. This is back 30 years ago. And he had his basket and the lady just looked at him and said, he gave him an old man card. All right, they give you. And she said, we don't take this. Handed it back to him. And this old fellow said, you don't take it. Well, th this is my food. And you could tell he was on limited income of some kind. She said, well, we just don't take it. And he was just in a daze. What do I do? And I'm right behind him. And I'm thinking, this guy could be my daddy. And I said, hey, at this time I had a credit card, okay? And I said, hey, Take mine, take mine. And I, I've just put my arm, this old fellow, big old blue eyes brimmed up with tears. And I said, guys like me stood on the shoulders of guys like you. And uh, he, he couldn't talk, he couldn't talk.
I think it cost like 70 bucks at the time, which today is a loaf of bread. Okay. <laughs> but at that time, it was a whole basket full of food. Now, Skip, I would have blown that 70 bucks on something stupid, or I could put it into a guy's memory. And today I told him, I said, Jesus Christ changed my life. And so everything I have is unto him. And so I, don't, I can't tell you any more stories about where I would have spent 70 bucks because I didn't remember them, but I did that one. So you take hold of that, which is life indeed. I believe I'm done. I have three more verses. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift of Jesus Christ who gave to us and uh, we pray that, Lord, uh, in this unique country that we are in, that you would find us diligent and hardworking and generous because the diligent hand is going to get elevated when employers see David types, Jacob types, Joseph types, Daniel types, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego types, Esther types, Mordecai types, Ezra, Zerubbabel types, when they see them, Moses types, Jesus types, they want those people close to them. And even though we have uh, grown and advanced in our, in our world, we've never outgrown that idea of integrity. And so I pray that you might give meaning to Monday. And we'll ask it in Christ's name. Amen.